Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most chilling, the most noteworthy homicide cases are examined and profiled. This season, season two, teen killers are profiled. On this episode, teenage murderer Benjamin Scott Garris is profiled and the unsolved homicide of 42-year-old Karen Angela Farrell is examined. The word for this episode is accountability. According to Investopedia.com, accountability is when an individual or department experiences consequences for their performances or actions. In other words, in order to grow or mature in life, at some point, you have to grow up, own up to the consequences of or ownership of your own actions, and not blame society, not blame mental illness, not blame your environment, not blame your parents. 16-year-old Benjamin Scott Garris had problems with accountability. I mean, he came from a somewhat decent, hard-working family out Frederick, Maryland, his father's side of the family did have some issues with mental illness because Ben's great-grandfather had shot himself in the head and killed himself in front of his grandfather, who at the time was only nine years old. He came from an actor family, sort of. His mom was a struggling wannabe actress. His father was a working man who lived in the home. From being exposed to acting in the theater at a young age, acting is what Ben decided he wanted to do with his life, and he was able to get little roles in films like Pippin, Pinocchio, and The Little Chimney Sweep. Baltimore movie director Barry Levinson even picked him as a stand-in for the actor Elijah Wood in the movie Avalon. And when Benjamin was just 10 years old, he was on his way to success when he got the starring role in the movie Oliver at the Frederick Community Center. But at the same time, on the flip side, in an interview with the Washington Times, his mother said that Ben often got severely depressed and upset when he auditioned for roles and didn't get the part. He auditioned for the role of Garouche and Le Maserat, and when he didn't get the role, his self-esteem was shot. Meanwhile, right after he got the lead role in Oliver, his mother started having an affair with another actor, and in 1990, she filed for divorce, left the family, and ended up marrying the dude. Ten-year-old Ben took the divorce extremely hard, blaming himself for everything. He showed signs of depression. He lived with his mother for a while, and because he couldn't stand her, he went to go live with his father. He couldn't accept the fact that his parents were divorced, couldn't move on, couldn't let go, or accept that sometimes it's not all about the actor. He started acting out to get attention, to get his parents to focus solely on him again. Hooking school, cutting class, smoking weed, taking drugs like LSD, and doing stupid stuff like once he got arrested at the Blue Ridge Newstown in Frederick for stealing a porno magazine. He did go to Frederick High School, and he had an older brother at the same school who was the total opposite. 
a popular athlete who graduated and went to the army and was making something out of himself. And people were always like, well, why can't you be more like your brother? He hated the comparison growing up in his shadows and that made him act out even more. As the fake emotional actors sometimes do, Ben was overly dramatic and, and couldn't handle when girls broke up with him. At 15 years old, he ran away from home with his then girlfriend, who was two and a half years older than him, and went to freaking Boston, Massachusetts, Salem, Massachusetts, and New York before finally coming back home five days later like, oh well, I'm back. When that same chick broke up with him, he threw a tantrum like a two-year-old and trashed his father's house, snatching shit off the walls, breaking up glasses, destroying his father's house. His father ended up having to call the police on his own son to get him to calm down, and Ben ended up spending five days in a psychiatric hospital calming down when he should have been in a jail cell. But instead, he got time out for breaking up his father's stuff. Accountability. Pissed because he ended up not being an actor, he started a fascination with a movie called A Clockwork Orange. In this sadistic and twisted movie, a murderer was put into some program and forced to watch things to make him hate violence at some sort of reprogramming, but the plan, the plan didn't work quite like that. The main character wears black Doc Martens and a damn jock strap over his pants. One day, Ben came downstairs and headed out for school dressed exactly like that, complete with the jock strap. His father was like, okay, I see what you're doing, but come on now, the jock strap has got to go. But Ben whined like a little kid, telling his father that his outfit was just a costume party. It was just for a costume party. And he was going as the main character from the movie, so his father gave in. That same day, he got suspended and sent home because the vice principal called his father and told him that there wasn't no school dance that day, and definitely not a costume party. His parents fought constantly, and he kept, he kept his parents debating constantly on how or what to do to discipline him because he could, he constantly threatened suicide and he blamed them for every little thing including his own behavior on march 8 1995 he made a suicide pact with his then girlfriend leaving a suicide note behind saying goodbye at his mom's house he shut his bedroom door swallowed a handful of ambient sleeping pills and washed them down with whiskey and codeine lace cough syrup at 2 a.m he started throwing up and having seizures. The noise woke the dog up when he fell on the floor. The dog barking woke up his mother, which probably saved Ben's life because his mother's husband, who was trained in first aid, stabilized him until 911 was called and he was rushed to a hospital, barely alive. His girlfriend never tried the suicide pact and broke up with him. His parents had enough of his theatrics and, late, and days later, they put him in a psychiatric hospital, Shepherd Pratt. Shepherd Pratt is one of the biggest psychiatric hospital institutions in Maryland. 
It's located in Towson and Baltimore County and offers both inpatient and outpatient treatment services to people. Anybody that's suffering from various mental and psychiatric disorders can find themselves a patient at, at Shepherd Pratt. Benjamin was placed in the Fordham College Cottage, which is a minimum security three-story stone building with a slate gray roof and two red chimneys. In this facility, he received counseling, medications, and was allowed to go to school there. The, co the cottage did house three other male juveniles who were also having emotional problems. There at the school, Ben met 15-year-old Jane DaCosta. Jane, like Ben, had mental issues and led a rough life despite having a decent upbringing. Like Ben, she shaved her head, flooded her body with tattoos, piercings, and nose rings. Labeled as a constant runaway, she had ran away from her home over 20 times and was at the Fordham College as an outpatient student who had been admitted because she had issues at her other school. Although she had been a pretty and popular student at Frederick High School, at just 12 years old, she stole her father's credit card and ran away to Boston with some boy. Her parents were done and they filed criminal charges against her and she spent two weeks in baby bookings. She too wanted to be an actress and always had to have an audience or all the attention and focus on her. Tattoos, piercings, nose rings, purple hair. Jane proudly wore it all and hid her pain by smoking weed, LSD, and constantly running away from home. She spent 11 days in various psychiatric institutions and was diagnosed with manic depression and other mental disorders. Because she was also suicidal with low self-esteem, when Jane and Ben met each other, the attraction was constant. The two were inseparable and Jane bragged about her new boyfriend to all of her friends. Ben wasn't so lucky. He had no real male friends and felt like a prisoner at Shepherd Pratt. He didn't see why he had to be there why he had to follow the rules, especially since his girlfriend was only there part-time. He felt that his parents had betrayed him by making him stay there, especially his father, because he wouldn't go along with trying to help him get out. Ben wanted out, and he wanted out real bad. When he learned that not only was he not leaving anytime soon, and he was about to be moved to a more secure, locked part of the facility, he decided he knew what was best for him and he wasn't going to have it. On the night of October the 8th, 1995, 26-year-old Sharon Edwards was enjoying her first overnight shift as a counselor and a nurse at Shepherd Pratt. The young single mother of a seven-year-old son had lived in the Winston Apartments in North Baltimore and had been an employee of Shepherd Pratt for seven months. And because she was bright, caring, and hardworking, she was promoted to this new position. On this same night, Ben had set his plan in motion to escape. His plan was simple. Drug the other residents so they wouldn't get in the way, talk to the new nurse on duty, tell her that he had a headache and needed an aspirin from the safe. And when she went to get it, attack her with one of the knives that Jane had given to him specifically for this act. 
The knife was an eight-inch hunting knife that Jane had gotten from a fair. He planned to tie the nurse up with duct tape, make her give up the combination to the safe, get all the money in the safe, and get ghosts. He had spent weeks planning how he was going to get out, especially since they were trying to move him, and he wasn't having it. So after he struck up a conversation with the young nurse and spent time watching TV with her, the teen surprised her, grabbing her by her hair and started slashing her in a stabbing and cutting frenzy where she begged for her life. I have $10. Take it. Please don't kill me. I have a baby. I'll let you go. She screamed. Everything. Anything. Stabbing her in the face first. Ben later told the detectives that she, as she begged for her life, like a part in a horror show, he screamed, you're dead. That's right. And now you're nothing but a piece of meat. After stabbing and cutting the nurse 26 times, he dragged her dead body behind a pool table in the living room. Then, keeping up with his plans, he set a fire that had been started with a liquid accelerant and made his escape. Later, he hooked up with his girlfriend around 4 a.m. and they both went on the run. They caught a bus to Virginia Beach and got low. The first call came into the police around 2.34 a.m. when one of the other residents reported to the hospital staff that he smelled smoke. Security guards responded and saw a small smoke fire on the front porch near some French doors. After they put the fire out, they followed a pool of blood that led to the dining room where Sharon's body was found. Ben shaved his head, dyed it orange of all colors, and managed to survive three weeks on the run with his girlfriend. In his room, detectives found tons of evidence linking him to Sharon's murder, like articles and research on how to set fires and letters about how to kill people, bus schedules and articles about murder and how to get away with it. When he wasn't caught immediately, America's Most Wanted and American Journal both aired stories about Sharon's murder and both Ben and Jane's disappearance. Finally, after three weeks of staying in the woods in homeless shelters, on October the 27th, 1995, Ben was caught in an ocean, oceanfront 7-Eleven in Virginia Beach when he tried to steal candy and cigarettes. The clerk on duty grabbed him before he could run off and called the police. The clerk did notice that a female was waiting for him in the parking lot but she took off running once she called, once she realized Ben was caught. Still playing like he was going for an Academy Award, when the police asked him what his name was, the smart athlete teen said his name was Ernest Hemingway. Jane was caught and arrested the next day. When questioned about her involvement in Sharon's murder, she admitted to giving Ben the knife to carry out the brutal attack. I was aware someone was going to die. But for some reason, I don't know, I didn't care. That's what she told the reporters. Charged as an adult with first degree murder, when caught, Ben still thought he was acting or auditioning for a movie role. He admitted to killing Sharon and wrote with dramatic flair in his confession how brutal her murder was. Oh yes, brothers, it grew into a real horror show with Devochi creeching their eyes out over unforgivable sinny winny sins that your number one narrator was soon enough the catalyst of. 
that's how he wrote in his confession. That's what he wrote in his confession. When the detectives asked him if he wanted to change anything about his confession, he said, from my statement, no. From my life, yes. Later, he eventually came to terms with what he had done, and at his sentencing hearing, Sharon's family let it be known how they felt. We asked the judge to give Benjamin Garris the maximum punishment. He had no remorse. He's a mean skinhead who got what he deserved. He wrote in his confession that he stabbed Sharon like she was a piece of meat. He did something he wasn't supposed to do. He has to pay. Once he's finished paying down here, he'll still won't be finished. He'll still have to pay with God. Sharon's mother later said in an interview with the Baltimore African-American. Ben too read, Ben, he was too shook to read his statement. He gave a note to the judge that read, before I address the following to the honorable judge and this entire courtroom, I would first like to offer my sincere apologies to the family of Mrs. Sharon Edwards. Although I know my suffering is just, theirs should never be forgotten. Each night my heart is with your daughter and your and your friend, Sharon. Most importantly, in my eyes, my heartfelt prayers are with her only son, who she undoubtedly loved very much. I'm truly sorry. I wish there was something I could say, something I could do to ease your frustration and pain. Only nothing, only nothing's ever that simple because we don't live in a world where apologies wipe away the tears and fill our emotional voids. But for what it's worth, my regret and remorse will always remain pure in their complete entirety. Are you serious? Really? Nobody ever heard a word or any of this gibberish because the judge refused to even read it out loud. Instead, she said, I will remember to my dying day the testimony in this case. It was vivid. It was hard. You squashed out the life of Sharon Edwards as if she were an ant crawling out on the ground. If it weren't for an aptitude, two others may have died. Showing absolutely no mercy on him, the judge sentenced Ben to live to life in prison without the possibility for parole, plus 50 more years to ensure he would never get out of prison. He showed no emotion at all throughout the whole ordeal. Jane was later charged and convicted as an accessory to first degree murder and received a five year suspended sentence with all but the 15 months that she had spent locked up awaiting trial suspended. She was also sentenced to spend time in a locked mental facility in Florida. According to Gould, she died on August 29, 2011. Ben spent his time in prison creating drawings and paintings that he used to sell online at a website he called bengarris.com but it was quickly shut down. Sharon's family filed a $10 million negligent lawsuit against Shepherd Pratt Hospital in Baltimore County Circuit Court and before the Health Claim Arbitration Office of Maryland, basically stating in the lawsuit that the institution didn't provide enough security to a woman that was working there alone with three male teenage boys and also that Ben shouldn't have been housed he should have been housed in a more secure part of the hospital anyway. I feel Shepard Pratt is responsible for my daughter's death. 
she went in there working with three teenage boys. There wasn't a soul in there to help her. His, her mother said that she wasn't motivated by money, but she was basically trying to do what Sharon set out to do as a single mother, and that was to ensure th and make sure that her seven-year-old son will be taken care of and that nobody would ever have to go through what they went through. I am seeking for that baby to have something until he gets grown. That was his mother. He won't get another mother. Her son told reporters that he thinks about his mother every day and he rem remembers their trips for pizza, their trips to the fair, and to basketball games. And the hardest part about losing his mother was the fact that he knew she was slashed to death. Sharon's mother wiped away tears as she described that her, her, at her daughter's funeral, they had to dress her up from her eyes down because she was just covered from head to toe in stab wounds. Even though a spokesperson for Shepard Pratt tried to back out of everything by saying that Sharon received the same training that all of their staff had and that Ben had shown no signs of being violent before, they decided to quietly settle the case for an undisclosed amount in May of 1997. Now, this murder was notorious in murder in, in Maryland because this was a wannabe actor always blaming everybody for every little mistake he made in his life, including a divorce from his parents that he had nothing to do with. From the time of 10 years old up until he was 16, he just blamed everybody for every little thing that happened to him. Poor little Ben. Um, he killed and slashed to death a hardworking single mother who was providing for her son in a, in a possibly dangerous environment I believe the parents were justified in filing suit against Shepard Pratt. I believe he should have been housed somewhere else, just like they said. Um, these were two kids that came from good homes, decent homes. The, the, the parents were in the homes. The parents held jobs. They worked. They possibly, probably spoiled them a little bit too much, which is why they ended up acting the way they did. I believe that James' sentence was a little bit too light. She knew somebody was going to die. She provided the knife like there was, like it was nothing. All of this no care attitude, oh, I'm young, I should get away with everything because I'm a teenager, I don't know what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. I wonder if he feels that way now, serving life without the possibility for parole for basically acting like he was two characters in, in a movie. Um, I believe he got what he deserved. I believe uh, that he should never be released. Um, I feel sorry for this hardworking mother. I feel sorry for her son. I feel sorry for her family, um, even though this happened in 1995. I know there are still holidays and stuff that go that pass that they still remember her. Um, her son still lives in her memory. Um, this was just, I remember this case vividly. I remember when it happened. I remember when they were on the run. I remember, I knew that they eventually would get caught. I just felt like how the police portrayed him to be a conniving, sneaky little liar was exactly what he was in this case, and I believe he got exactly what he deserved. This episode's unsolved homicide is the murder of 42-year-old Karen Farrell. On December the 11th, 2010, someone came into the home of 42-year-old Karen Farrell in the 1800 block of 29th Street in the Coldstream Homestead Montebello neighborhood of Northeast Baltimore City and beat her to death. 
The murderer then wrapped her body in plastic and hid her under some steps in the basement. Baltimore City had already experienced over 220 homicides that year, and this horrendous homicide took place while Karen was home babysitting her seven-year-old grandson and one-year-old cousin. A neighbor knew something was wrong when Karen's kids came over her house a few days later on December the 15th, 2010, saying that their front door was open and the house was quiet and she wasn't home. Karen's wallet and her medicine that she needed was also still left in the home. Suspicious, at first Karen was just reported missing, but as the days progressed, neighbors noticed a foul, bad odor coming from her house. Then, on December 18, 2010, her brother-in-law searched her home and saw a hand poking out of some plastic that was wrapped around her body. That's when he called 911 and the police confirmed that Karen had been dead in her home the whole time. Karen had graduated from Baltimore City College High School in 1986 and then from Morgan State University. She was a loving mother of three children and two grandchildren. She was a good person and she loved her kids more than she did herself, a neighbor told the police. This is a murder that should have been solved a long time ago. Over 10 years and still no suspects, no arrests, no connect, no convictions. Please people, I mean this lady was killed while a seven year old and a one year old were in the house. Surely someone has to know something. If you have any information that can lead to an arrest or conviction, please call Cold Case Homicide Detectives at 410-396-2100 or 1-866-7-LOCKUP. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. Please note that all of the cases profiled will be featured in the upcoming book, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 2009 to 2020, and in the previously released book, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990 through 2008, which is available, which is available as an ebook or as a paperback copy all on amazon.com thanks for tuning in again and this has been a real life production